Welcome to Coffee Time at the Water's Edge. I'm Rodney, and this week we are going to be discussing cessationism versus continuationism with our special guest, Dr. Newman. So let's go ahead, pour that coffee, and dig into the conversation. So, Steve, starting right off, what coffee are we drinking? Hey, nothing special. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be drinking some church coffee. Church this coffee. So, grab that church coffee and join us. Always made good by the grace of God. Cheers, mates. It's good. Blessed and highly favored. <laughs> highly flavored. Highly flavored, yes. <laughs> Yeah, probably not like the uh, the reformed roasters, you know, that we've had. So. Right, right. Not highly caffeinated. <laughs> yes. All right. So, guys, this week we are talking about the conversation that's been going on on X, formerly known as Twitter. It's been actually a pretty heavy argument on cessationism versus continuationism. Um, and it seems to have been kicked off by, one, there was a, a, a conference that was held by a lot of like the Pentecostals uh, that was announced or, you know, promoted on Twitter. And then on top of that, you had Dr. Michael Brown who backed out of a, um, the, the filming of the American gospel after he had filmed portion of it with them. He backed himself out um, because he called it, uh, what was it? Uh, the uh, strange fire Two is what mm. he called it, which was, if anybody doesn't know the original book written by John MacArthur, Strange Fire, where he discusses uh, continuationism. But I, th- it, I think that Strange Fire is the name of a conference that they hosted. That, you're right. Uh, the book right. is called Charismatic Chaos. Okay. MacArthur's book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, but when, when this happened, it created a lot of controversy on Twitter. A lot of lot of back and forth on the cessationism versus and almost to the point of really calling each other some pretty nasty names. Uh, so I thought this would be a good topic for us to discuss. And where where are we in this and what are those positions? So what I'd like to start off with is what is the definition of both? We'll start with cessationism first. Well, Let me just start off by saying that for those that may not be acquainted, we're talking about this in the area of spiritual gifts. So do the spiritual gifts continue or have they ceased? Um, Steve, you want to take the definition of continuationism? Yeah, well, I mean, continuation means they've continued to operate. Here, usually this conversation, well, this conversation does center around not all spiritual gifts, but particularly around what we would call the miraculous gifts, um, which can be divided in a number of categories. You have like your revelatory gifts. This is like the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom. You have your sort of sign or power gifts, the gifts of healing or working of miracles, it would say in 1 Corinthians. Um, and then you have your utterance ones. You have prophecy, you have uh, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. And so whether or not those particular miraculous gifts continue is at the heart of this debate. 
the language comes from 1 Corinthians 13 that says there is a day where these will cease. And it specifically mentions prophecy and tongue speaking. And so the ceasing of these gifts is at the heart of, you know, this debate between continuationists who would say they have continued up until today in the church age, and cessationists would typically believe that they ceased at a point in time, normally around the time that the New Testament canon was closed, where we had the final complete revelation of God. That You'll find variances within cessationist yeah, camps on that. That's one view yeah. of that. The continuationist view also sometimes refers to themselves as the full gospel view, uh, meaning that they believe that the full gospel, uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then also the book of Acts shows that you know, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed, and so therefore the giving of those gifts hasn't changed, and the church still needs those gifts today. And so, um, you know, the full gospel is that these gifts continue. Uh, anything less than that would not be the full gospel. Okay. So would this be classified as a first-tier issue? Well, it sounds like if if that camp is saying the gospel's incomplete without it, then I would say that they have elevated that to a first-tier issue. I, on the other hand, do not think so. Um, it, but I want to be careful the way I talk about it. Just because I say something's not primary or first-order or first-tier issue does not mean it's not incredibly important, particularly for how your church functions. And so what I, what I, the things that I would put in this, what we would say second tier issues, these would be things that don't necessarily divide church to church fellowship, but do divide churches from one another. Um, meaning if, you know, you have a gift that's, or you have a church that's fully embraced the gifts and there's a, a huge emphasis placed on that and a constant pursuing of, of the gifts in the in the main gathering that someone who would hold a cessationist view or a more moderate view may not fellowship as a part of that becoming a member of that church so second tier are things that would divide church to, or local churches but not church to church fellowship meaning you, we wouldn't say they're not Christians now they're because there's so many sort of uh, variances within this there are proponents of maybe a full gospel movement that you would probably say borderline on preaching a different gospel, um, if not outright preaching a different gospel. So in that case, then you would say, yeah, this is a first order issue. But generally it's not, you know, thought of as as divisive to say that you would say that gifts continue to operate in some form under biblical warrant or biblical parameters versus someone who says that the gifts have ceased. I, th I think we could still be brothers and charitable I think I've seen this modeled in a good way by Thomas Schreiner, Wayne right. Grudem. Like Schreiner would be a cessationist, Grudem would be a continuationist, and and those are brothers that have worked together over the years and love one another and are respected scholars, and and speak charitably about each other's positions on this. I, I think you know when you ask if it's first tier or not, it's really a matter of perspective. As Steve mentioned, you know. Um, for those who are more along the cessationist line, no, it's not a first-tier issue at all. But for some who are part of the continuation line, then yes, it is. Uh, even to the point of, you know, tongues being a 
required uh, aspect of salvation that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Uh, and you know, I've I've been told that before by people. And you know, I I was running a Bible study uh, up in Alaska <clears throat> for a while in a person's home, and uh, I, I happened to mention one Sunday morning that the the healings and the miracles that the apostles, the disciples were doing were not necessarily taking place anymore. Well, I didn't know she was a full gospel proponent. And at that point, uh, you know, she came to me and said, you can't have Bible study in my house anymore. And so it's clear to me, all right, uh, I wasn't, you know, distancing from her, but she was basically saying no, we can't have that here. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. So are, are there variations of this, of both sensationism and continuationism? Well, from a cessationist point of view, yeah, there is a, there's actually a point of view called the strict cessationist, which many are unaware of. It, it actually believes that all spiritual gifts came to an end by the end of the first century. So the, by the time that the canon was completed, all gifts, including, you know, whether it be, you know, uh, preaching or teaching or giving or service, all gifts have come to an end. Uh, and they were only for the first century. Uh, you won't find a lot of people that believe that today. Um, most will be in the cessationist camp. Um, and for me, I like to label my view as open but cautious. In other words, uh, I believe that for the most part, there are certain gifts that God has stopped giving on a wide area. But I'm not going to be one that comes and says what God can't do. You know? <laughs> uh, you know, God, you can't do that. Uh, and then I think he laughs, uh, but uh, watch me. Uh, so, you know, but as, as long as it fits what scripture says, I think we're good. Uh, but so, you know, I'm willing to, to, to listen and to learn. But for the most part, I'm thinking, no, there are some gifts that are no longer given in wide proportion. Okay. Steve, thoughts? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely variances with, within these positions for sure. Um, I would want to point to sort of the pitfalls of both extremes because on one hand, I want to be critical of some cessationist brothers that um, really, what I want to ask is like, how, where do you land in scripturally? Like is, that's really what's the most important aspect of this whole argument is what is, what does the Bible say? And if the Bible says that the gifts have ceased, then, then when does, when does it tie that to? How do we know that? Like, what are the biblical arguments for this position that you're making? Not just because you're weirded out by some of the mysterious abuses, which is some of the pitfalls of the other side, which is rampant charismatic chaos, as, as um, you know, MacArthur would say, where the pitfalls over on this side is elevating experience over doctrine. It is also potentially even practicing the gifts in ways that are not consistent with what the instructions given in the Bible for how these gifts were to operate in right. the church. Right. And so the, I think there's dangers on, on both sides. Uh, personally, I, I, I would fit the category of a continuationist, but very much cautiously and discerning. So for example, 
Um, growing up, I did not grow up in the church. I did uh, on a handful of occasions attend church, I think less than five times. A couple of those were more charismatic churches. And I watched the gathering and what took place there that at the time I had no biblical framework for how unbiblical what was taking place was. But you had multiple people, crowds of people speaking in tongues all over the place. And it was kind of, it was, you know, just a little bit weird for me as an unbeliever. People were running up and down the halls. There was multiple tongues happening in prayer. And then I read the scripture and Paul puts some parameters around orderly worship in 1 Corinthians 14, particularly how the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy were to be exercised in an orderly way in the local church. And he very explicitly says no more than two or three mm -hmm. at the most three and two, at the most three and one at a time, one at a time and, and with an, an interpreter, interpreter. right? And same thing for prophecy. So prophecies, no more than two or three, one at a time, and they're to be weighed by the other prophets. And so I've just never experienced a gathering of the church where that happens in that way. Right. Um, so those are the kind of parameters. Like when people ask me, what would you do if, you know, because typically at Water's Edge, it's, it would not be classified as a charismatic church by that definition. And so what would I do if someone, you know, stood up and started speaking in tongues? Well, I would go to 1 Corinthians 14 and I would ask if anyone has an interpretation for this. And if not, 1 Corinthians 14 says that that person should remain silent. So we would, you know, moderate that in a way that's biblical and functional and, and ask that person to sit down and remain silent if, if someone doesn't have an interpretation of that. And, and I would even add another stipulation from 1 Corinthians 14, the tongues. Paul makes the point that tongues are for unbelievers. And so I, I believe that, you know, tongues are a different language, not just ecstatic speech. Um, and... Therefore, I take what Paul says there to mean that there is an unbeliever in that presence who speaks that language, that that tongue speaker grabs that individual's attention. And so not only is it, you know, one at a time, two at the most, three, there must be an interpreter, but I see the need for a an unbeliever who speaks that language to be there as well. And, you know, I can imagine numerous scenarios where that would be the case, uh, but none of the situations that I've ever been in and experienced people speaking right, in tongues. Which, which biblically that was Pentecost. When Pentecost happened, the apostles were speaking and they were speaking in the languages of other people who were there right. who were not from Jerusalem. So Right. To be very fair, though, I don't think the Pentecost experience is what Paul has in view in 1 Corinthians 14. No, I don't think— they were speaking seemingly multiple, obviously more than three. So whatever right. Paul's doing, he's talking about for the church gathering yeah. moving forward. This is the orderly way to, to do this. And the Corinthians appear from that context to be speaking in tongues as well and seeking, you know, those gifts. Now, historically speaking, we know that this is something that the church has seen before. Uh, I mean, especially when you look back at the, I think it was the third, second century, um, you had a, a um, recent convert who was supposedly a, a uh, prophet of, of um, Apollo who converted to Christianity and started wanting his own prophetic utterances to be considered scriptural. Um, 
And the funny thing is, is right now I can't think of his name, so I'll post it down below. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll see it written down there in the bottom if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, but it just made me think of that because I know that even back then, Tertullian, by the by the uh, believed along with them, and because of his belief along with them, was not considered a saint by the Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox Church. So this is something that historically we know, especially when in regards to prophecy, was considered a big no-no. So, I mean, that's that's one of the things that I was looking at historically. It's it's kind of a, a, a thing that was dealt with a long time ago. And well, history's a little bit tricky because you know I think I think Augustine's kind of the early one of the early. I don't know if we he's still considered the patristic era or not, but he um does articulate a more cessationist view. And then, of course, Calvin and the Reformers do as well. Uh, but then there's this period of, you know, moral corruption and doctrinal struggle of the Dark Ages, which you don't hear a lot. And so, but I don't think an argument from silence, I don't know how much weight that carries because the church was in not a position where God would not have been, you know, blessing and favoring in the way that, that you would think someone in tune with the Spirit is functioning. And so I, I do think history is important, but I'm not sure that's where I, I think much more importantly is the scripture, right? Absolutely. What does the Bible say about Absolutely. Things? Right. All right. So uh, when we look at the Pentecostal movement and we look at uh, Assembly of God, what are some of the things that you think caused this rise in this, this form of, of Christianity in the United States? It's a good question. As I look back on history and the rise of Pentecostalism and charismatic uh, movement, I, I see it almost as a reaction to what might be called fundamental evangelistic, you know, Christianity, um, you know, which many of us might fit into. And, you know, some charismatics would say, well, you know, we, we're fundamental and and, uh, you know, evangelical as well. But, you know, there, there came a time when the mainline church really began to downplay the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit, almost to an ignorance of Him. And I think that what happened is, is that the charismatic movement took that and said, well, He's a member of the triune Godhead. We need to emphasize him. And so there became an overemphasis on him. And so we have, you know, two movements in a sense that were both in a ditch. One ignoring the Holy Spirit and the other overemphasizing the Holy Spirit rather than having that healthy balance of what the Scripture says regarding the, the Holy Spirit. So that, that's what I see as a, you know, a rise of these movements. Yeah, I don't know what I would, what I would attribute that to as a, you know, from a historical perspective. I think that's a pretty good analysis that there is a there certainly is a, a reaction against the stiff, stuffy, seemingly devoid of spirit that plagues some fundamentalist camps. And I and you well here here's a good I've heard Wayne Grudem say this, who is a continuationist. He, he said, if you lock someone in a closet who's never read the Bible and just had them read the New Testament, what would they conclude? Right. 
Because his his position is that the church age is the same age as it was under the New Covenant era when the sons and daughters will prophesy the prophecies of Joel from Acts chapter 2 being quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And so he, he would say the logical conclusion is is that you would believe that these gifts continue. Um, now, he also would, would kind of put those seatbelts on of like, okay, but how do they function? And how do we answer critics? Because what it comes down to is revelation. Like, do we believe God is giving new revelation? And this is where cessationists want to pump the brakes and be like, Scripture is sufficient on what? What level of authority, if you believe the gift of prophecy, for example, continues? What level of authority does this gift have? What if you if you utter, utter a prodigy, pro- prophecy today, is that something that I can write in the back of my Bible as "Thus saith the Lord"? But most charismatics don't actually believe that. Um, to be fair, right. and so the, the argument that Gruden would make is that these are more personal utterances that are you know specific to situational things in individual lives not necessarily prophecy given to the the whole body or to the world in that sense that the scripture is sufficient in that way and so this is this is where it gets tricky and i think the heart of the matter is what do we believe about divine revelation so so in other words somebody who walks up to you and says i see god has great things for you in the future would be a situational and personal prophecy, not necessarily a general church overall. Thus saith the Lord God said that this is, I mean, we, we see where that's gotten some groups within the church. I mean, you look at Joseph Smith. Uh, this is, you know, where they become or declare themselves to be a prophet and give a lot of thus saith the Lord's that are completely contrary to this. Right. And you throw into that mix Charles Stays Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mary Baker Eddy, Ellen White with the Seventh-day Adventists and Christian Science. And all of those believe that prophecies uttered by these leaders were divinely authoritative and equally as inspired as Scripture. And that's where you get into the issue, you know. Uh, You know, personally... Uh, I believe that the prescription in Deuteronomy 18 still holds true that the test of a true prophet is 100% accuracy. You know, if you're really speaking for God, you can't be wrong because our God is never wrong. And so, and, you know, God's prescription for those who were false prophets who were only 99% was death, stone them to death. Yeah, this is this is tricky because I, you know, I've I've always held that as well. Um, but after trying to listen to and be more sympathetic to the counter views, is I, I I do think proponents like Grudem would say that if the prophecy of the New Testament era does function differently than the, than the Old Testament prophets, Grudem would, and and a lot of people do. A lot of people take prophecy of the New Testament and state, well, it's it's more of a preaching. You know, it's just preaching. And, you know, you, you'll notice there is four passages in the New Testament that give us a list of spiritual gifts. And in those lists of about 19 or 20 gifts, preaching is not in any of them. And yet I think everybody would 
uh, would agree that well, preaching is most likely a spiritual gift. Teaching certainly is, is preaching as well. And so some have just said, well, then that's prophecy. And personally, I have a difficult time separating prophecy of the New Testament from that of the Old Testament, especially in light of Agabus in the book of Acts, who both proclaimed and predicted. And so I see both elements being there. And to just erase the predictive element completely. Yeah, here's how you get there, though. So <clears throat> certainly the the prophecy of the New Testament as equal to modern-day preaching is not a biblical stance that you can substantiate. Um, Ephesians, I'm just going to take you through a quick walk in Ephesians. Ephesians 2.20, for example, uh, this is huge because it, it talks about the foundational work of the church. And it says that the foundational work of the church was what the apostles and the prophets did, that they laid the foundation. Specifically, it says, this is Ephesians 2.20, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So on one hand, a cessationist would say, well, there it is. You know, the work of the apostles, the work of the prophets was foundational. That foundation has been laid. Now we're building on that foundation through the teaching of, of the scriptures, right? And to, to the case that you were stating about modern-day prophecy being the same as preaching, that doesn't hold up if you just keep reading, because in the next chapter, Ephesians 3, verse 5, it talks about insight into the mystery of Christ in verse 4. And then in verse 5, this is Ephesians 3, 5, it says, "...which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets." by the Spirit. So this was revelation, that what was happening in the first century was new revelation, mysteries given to the apostles and the prophets that had not been revealed in other generations. And so this was not just the preaching of the Word, this was new revelation that was being given. Um, and so that, that whole idea of, you know, I'm a, a preachers or prophets because they're proclaiming the Word of God is... I don't think does justice to the New Testament view of what a, a prophet does. Exactly. However, the way you get there to thinking that it does function a little differently than Deuteronomy 18 is Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 14, which say that these prophecies are to be weighed by the other prophets. And so there seems to be some sort of conversation that takes place of discerning whether or not this revelation is to be accepted or rejected. And 1 Thessalonians 5 gives us a little bit of insight. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. It says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So there you can weigh this out. And that was supposed to be the other prophets that do that. It says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Meaning there's, there may be parts of this that aren't good, and there's no instruction to stone them or kill them. Right. And so it's like, well, I'm not sure. So I can understand why Grudem would say that it does function maybe a little bit differently in the New Testament office. And so, yeah, man, it's, it's a, I think it's much more of a tricky topic than people think. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, as you mentioned before, comes down to, okay, if we're looking at cessationism and 
when they end. Um, what are we going by? And, you know, for all intents and purposes, the primary passage there is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, when Paul says, but when that which is perfect comes, that which is in part shall be done away with. And prior to that, as Stephen mentioned, you know, prophecies will end, tongues will cease. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot in there about the, the, the Greek and the terms and even the verb tenses. But it, you know, it comes down to, okay, well, what is that which is perfect, you know, uh, as the King James uses that term? You know, the Greek word is teleos, which can mean end or complete or mature. And so some have taken that which is perfect as being the, the canon of Scripture. So, uh, again, as I mentioned before, the strict sensationist, okay, canon is complete, Genesis through Revelation, all gifts have ceased. Uh, others look at that which is perfect as the second coming of Christ, you know, um, what we might call the parousia, and that therefore these gifts will cease before that event. Um, I kind of look at it uh, and see Teleos also used, you know, you're looking at uh, Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the maturity of the church, and he uses that same term, uh, Teleos, and says, you know, God has given some prophets and evangelists and teachers, and, you know, for the maturing, for the completion of his church. And, and I see that, you know, gifts are a part, and that maturity is the whole. Uh, and you say, well, when is that going to happen? Well, that's part of the question of, you know, it, it, is he talking about the completion of the church when the church has its last person saved and entered into it? And there you get a variety of discussions of opinions, uh, eschatologically as to, you know, what determines the church, or is he talking about more of a spiritual maturity and how do we know when that happens? So it, it's, it's certainly not a cut and dry issue at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that, the, and I made this case before, we did a similar topic talking about tongues um, on, the, on a previous Coffee right. Old Show episode. Um, but verse 10 specifically, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But then he goes into this illustration of a child. So he, he relegates almost like the, the gifts, although he says pursue them right. you know, earlier in the chapter. Or actually when chapter 14 opens up, he says pursue it, love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. But even though he's saying pursue this, desire these gifts, he does sort of relegate them to you know, childhood. Childish, yeah. Because <laughs> um, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, that would be the mature, right? I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So it seems as if this future perfect coming is face to face. Like this is when these gifts would cease. That's an argument for continuationism where others would argue that with the perfect, if you argue that the perfect is the canon, then it's, okay, the canon's complete. You know, when the time, by the time 
John wrote Revelation, canon's complete, the gifts begin to cease then. Right. Um, but if it's if it's when we see face to face at the second coming of Christ tied to that, then it's an argument for continuationism. Schreiner would say, <laughs> who is a cessationist, would, would still hold that the gifts have ceased prior to that, but he says the way that the gifts functioned, particularly Revelation. So when the New Testament canon closed, when John writes the last book of the Bible, Revelation, they did not have a uniform collection of the scriptures as we do today. So these were still letters that were circulating among the church in the first century. And that goes on, you know, during the second century and even into the third century before there's official recognition of the complete canon and collection. And so in that, he would he would argue that it took a, probably a few hundred years before. And, and if you trace historically, like records of sign gifts, notations of them throughout the early church period, you do see a tempering back right. of the gifts. decline. One of the but arguments again, made... other reasons for that, maybe. But one of the arguments made from 1 Corinthians 13 deals uh, for the cessationist is uh, what Paul writes earlier in, in verse 8 when he says, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. And the you'll notice that there's you know two words there, they will pass away and they will cease. And pass away is um, <clears throat> passive, meaning it's going to something's going to bring it to an end. But will cease. Speaking about tongues is in the middle, reflexive, which means it's going to stop on its own. And so the argument is. If we're looking at the return of Christ as being that which is perfect, then tongues will have already ceased of their own before Christ returns. And so I think that Schreiner, I think Schreiner makes that argument. Good, yeah, he, he does. Um, so and, and but then, you know, again, to muddy the, the issue, you know, Paul uses, uh, you know, prophecy, tongues and knowledge. And the question is, why those three gifts? You know, why those three particular gifts? Is he using them as representative? Uh, some scholars think he's talking just about those three gifts. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the interesting one there for me is knowledge. And so I would have to question, well, well what does that mean that, that knowledge will pass away? Well, specifically, if you look in chapter 12, it's referred to as the word of knowledge. Okay. So that would mean that there's some kind of utterance in there as well. Well, in special insight. Yeah. Okay. That you could not have known apart from an impartation of the gift right. of the Spirit to give you the special knowledge. But, and I've heard uh, some people say, well, the the word of knowledge is, is kind of like the gift of counseling. You know, God gives you the discernment to ask the question behind the question and see the issue behind the issue. Uh, you know, I got to say, I don't know. Uh, yeah. God doesn't tell us that. Well, so do you guys have any other aspects of this that you would like to discuss? Probably. I mean, I, I really feel like this, <laughs> this could be a several hour long <laughs> conversation. 
I just I despise the the demonization of both sides. Like I I hundred percent say avoid the pitfalls on both ends. Like don't be so staunch in your cessationism that you you know box God in and do not allow any conversation about the Holy Spirit, yeah. which is silly, but that, yeah. that, I mean, there are churches that function that way. And then on the other side, it's like, well, don't uh, pursue these gifts. Like, cause the whole, the whole point of first Corinthians 12 through 14 is that the Corinthians seem to be elevating and emphasizing this to a, a very faulty level. And Paul's like correcting that. And he's saying, yeah, these are great. Like this is incredibly important, but, but really chill out because these are these are like the childish. This is only in part. Like this is not the fullness of seeing him face to face. So he's trying to temper back the emphasis on these gifts. Whereas I I think churches that would overemphasize these things tend to elevate them above even the the written word of God in Scripture. And so you have you know people basing doctrine off of experience, not 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 the word of God. Um, and so those they're like the extremes of both sides. I think are dangerous pitfalls. Um, but I do think having good conversation, reading the Word of God, following the Bible, trusting in the Lord, like these are the most important aspects of of this conversation. It's like the Holy Spirit is what do we what do we know for sure that the Spirit is doing right now? We know that the Spirit lives in believers, that the Spirit being led by the Spirit is not talked about in the Bible in some mysterious way. It's to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means to live by the Spirit. The Spirit works in us to make us holy, to to bring conviction when we sin against the Lord, to to help us, right, as we seek to understand God's Word. He wrote this book. Like if you look at in Peter where he describes how he got the Bible, it says men carried, carried along by right. the Holy Spirit wrote these things down. And so every time we read the Bible, we're hearing from the Holy Spirit. And so it's like emphasize what we know for sure, and then put the right sort of framework around the things that we understand less. And not to box God in, but to, okay, well, what does the Scripture say about this? How should these be practiced if they exist? I think one of the challenging things for me is that, you know, if, you know, at, in my position that I hold as a cautious continuationist, I struggle because the Bible doesn't put any specific qualifications for a prophet. Like in, in the New Testament, okay, what classifies a son and daughter as a, as a prophet? How do we, what, what specific um, parameters or guidelines or criteria do we weigh modern prophecy? What's the penalty, if there is penalty, for, well, for and, speaking false prophecies? And, and that's the and thing. We just don't have those kind of instructions. Yeah. Right? We're told to weigh them, to test them. Exactly. Yeah. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we are never given a definition of a spiritual gift of any of them. And very rarely are we even given a description of them actually in service. And so we're given lists of gifts. And, you know, Paul and Peter both say, hey, if you've been given this gift, do it. You know, it's like, what is that? And to what Steve said, let me just add one more element, and that is to be done in love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, we often call the love chapter, but it's right smack dab in the middle of that section on spiritual gifts. And that love has everything to do with spiritual gifts being used by the church and in the church. And, you know, 
using gifts to glorify God and to grow the church. That's the purpose of them. They're not for us. They're, they're not uh, toys to be played with, but tools to be used to glorify God and grow the church. And when we do that in love, I think those ditches that we were talking about can be avoided. Yep, two final things, maybe. Just <laughs> <laughs> as if we could be done talking about this. Um, amen to, to what you just said. It just reminded me of like the whole point of, of chapter 12 through 14 is to, to sort of scale back the overemphasis that was taking place at the Church of Corinth. But it was also to show that, that the spiritual gifts were designed and imputed by God for the edification of the church. That's why he Paul elevates prophecy over speaking in tongues. He says tongue is personally edifying, but a prophecy is, you know, I would rather speak five words of prophecy than a ten thousand. I think he says right. in the tongue, because if, if it can encourage you, console you, and those are the kind of the ways he puts parameters around it. Like these are what's beneficial to edify and build up God's church, and so God is going to build His church through the power of the Spirit. Um, and so we, I do think there is a sort of a, a mindfulness and a sensitivity we have to have to these things. Second thing, and this is just really far a side note. I just thought <laughs> to say it earlier um, because it, 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 uh, it appears in this context. Um, so earlier when I was talking about um, that prophecies in the context of a church gathering were to be weighed. This is Paul's instruction to the Corinthians by other prophets. And then the very next thing he says is that women are to be silent in the churches. Now, here's here's why I mentioned that as a sidebar at the end. That verse has caused so much controversy <laughs> and so much hate and discontent and so much confusion, right? What I think is the most logical interpretation of that instruction is, is it's regarding the weighing of these prophecies, that, that women, even women who were prophets, who were given instructions on how to prophesy, there were women functioning as prophets in the New Testament. And this is not the role of pastor, elder, overseer. This is a separate office. New Testament prophets, sons and daughters, male and female were, were prophesying. They were given instructions on how to pray and how to prophesy in the church by Paul, head coverings, you know, sign of submission. And when he says to be silent, it's talking about in the context of weighing these prophecies. So it appears that um, women were not to weigh the prophecies of men in that setting. But so the silent prohibition is not that women should never talk in church. Right. Never right. have any Never dialogue. be up on stage and give announcements. Yeah. 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 We're, we're in violation of that every week if that's the case. Right. And so I, I just say that because it's like people get hung up on that. Right. And it's yes. like they completely remove it from its context of the conversation happening around prophecy at that moment and, and weighing those. So right. that's a sidebar. Well, and, and I've heard some take that as a fifth stipulation about tongues that tongues should not be used by women. Now, <laughs> I agree with you. It's much more in the context of weighing the prophecies. But uh, again, can you imagine the controversy of, okay, women aren't allowed to speak in tongues and to go around to some <laughs> churches and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, there's some, there's some, uh, some senior pastors in the, in, the, in the Pentecostal movement that are women 
who regularly speak in tongues from the pulpit. So, or they say they're speaking in tongues. Anyways, I think that one of the big things that, that I see and I notice is when we say that we're going to weigh these things and we weigh what we're hearing from other people is also one of the things that we need to look at is, is this person doing this to glorify God or are they doing it to glorify themselves? And I think sometimes we do see that a uh, matter of fact, we have the, the, um, acts example of that. Um, I can't think of his name off the top of my head right now who wanted the gifts, you know what I mean? That, that Paul had so that he could, you know, preach and make money. And so I, I think that there's, there's that, um, that we, that we have to watch for that. You have to definitely watch for out there. I, I think we see it a lot. Um, you talking about Simon. Simon. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, so when we, um, when we're out there and we're watching on YouTube or watching on, uh, whatever TV station you're watching on, I think you have to be careful because there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of wolves that are willing to take advantage of you as Christians, um, to get money out of you. And they are say they're performing these things, you know, by God, but they're doing it to glorify themselves rather than God himself. So uh, I think that's definitely something to watch out for. For sure. And it all goes back to, it's all for the edification of the church, right? right. right? Not for the glorification of man. We didn't even get into like gifts of healing. And nope. <laughs> it's like, that's why well, I said prophecy was like a big one. I mean, well, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, and especially, I know we had our Trump prof- prophets not too long ago uh, who were prophesying that Trump was going to win the second election. Where are they at? <laughs> <laughs> well, they would say that he did probably. Yeah. And that it was, yeah. well, I don't know. I want to get into that. <laughs> Strike that from the record. Yeah, that's a different topic. <laughs> yes. Strike <laughs> it from the record. But but yeah, I think I think overall, I, I think that there is a, there's a middle ground answer to this. Um, and I think your apps guys are absolutely right to stay away from the, the ditches on both sides of the road. Um, because it's very easy to get into that. So, uh, are there any last thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if that is all we got, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for this conversation. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. So, If you guys out there have any comments, make sure you leave them below. If you have not done so yet, make sure you like, subscribe, and click that bell so you know when we put out new material. Also, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and we like five stars. (laughs) We like five stars. Five stars are nice. All right, so I think that's all we got. We love you all, and God bless. Peace out.